was a pretty much a blackout user. You know, I drank until I blacked out or I used other drugs until I blacked out and I'd get a script of Serapax in Penrith and wake up four days later on the Gold Coast or something like that, not yeah. knowing what I'd done in between. And You know, I'd sleep in parks or, you know, the police would actually pick us up and, you know, drop us out of town or sort of work through all the drugs and, and pretty much exhausted all my sort of resources to, you know, continually to get drugs. And I was a bit of a desperate sort of drug user. There was nothing glamorous about it, that's for sure. Welcome to Let's Talk, a podcast about mental health in rural and regional Australia. My name is Kaya Handley. I'm a journalist and I've had my own lived experience with mental illness. This episode, we're focusing on drugs, alcohol and your mental health. Having a drink, a smoke, a toke, when you're young, when you're celebrating, hanging out with friends, having a good time... Turning to alcohol, even to some drugs, can seem like a pretty stereotypical Australian thing to do. But according to Beyond Blue, over 500,000 Australians will experience depression and a substance use disorder at the same time, at some point in their lives. And it's often in our youth where this unhealthy relationship can start. That's how addiction happened with Andrew House. He had his first drink at 15, a few cans of beer... And even though that day ended with him rolling his mum's car, he still remembers that feeling of alcohol in his system. There was a cartons of beer in the laundry and I'd always been, or well not always been curious, but I just, yeah, I remember just becoming curious about what they were so and what the deal was with alcohol. Did it instantly become a, a bit of a problem for you? I remember feeling, I remember just feeling set free. And like even just talking about now, it's like it was yesterday, you know, it was like so vivid, the, the experience and... And I had three cans and I remember vomiting and, and I remember I was quite I was quite intoxicated. And the drinking didn't stop. Pretty much any chance I'd get most time on, most sort of um, every chance I got, I'd sort of, you know, we'd, we'd go and get it on the drink. And it was, you know, whether it was sort of flagons of wine down behind the, you know, down in the oval or whether it was just, and that time of, of year for us, school was sort of ending. So there was a lot of ending school parties and, you know, so was, there was alcohol around. For Andrew, drink turned into smoking marijuana and there was always a promise to himself, I'll never do this drug, I'll never do that drug. But it was a promise he didn't keep. Drink turned into drugs. All these things I said I'd never do. I said I'd never, never said I'd never drink alcohol, but I said I'd never smoke pot and then I'd never use powders and I'd never use needles. And I remember telling myself all these things and, you know, and then... I remember using speed, you know, when I first drank it because I was sort of scared of it. Two weeks later, I'm sort of like still awake and just in love with this stuff again. And it was a whole, and that happened. I went, ended up down in Melbourne. So I grew up in a country town. So I ended up in Melbourne doing this. And it was just, it was just really um, environmental too for me, I think, with the drug and the people around and using the drug and feeling really good with those people, doing the drugs with these people. And then coming back home to the small country town and, and then it didn't have that same, I actually got quite paranoid using speed. I got quite isolated. And then needles come along and start injecting it, you know, and that was an introduction to another group of people, another sort of lifestyle, another way of sort of, you know, doing things. And the same thing happened. I got quite paranoid. I lost my ability to speak. I lost my ability to, to interact with people. Yeah, it was awful. And it was painful. I just remember my head just going 100 miles an hour about how, terrible I was. The same guy that introduced us to pot who introduced me to speed now introduced me to heroin and said, look, I'll, I'll sort out your speed problem and he introduced me to heroin. So, so I started using heroin and, I was, and that's when I actually robbed our house. I actually robbed the, my family's house. And from then it was like that was the, it was almost that was the chain of events that 
that started me actually getting better. And I remember getting kicked out and then that's the first time I went to rehab. I went back home and then we went to rehab and then pretty much from then I was pretty homeless after the, you know, the time I went to rehab to the time I sort of, you know, got straight. So I just, you know, I didn't rehab for a few months. I'd leave and just live in the streets and hitchhike all over up and down the East Coast or just bum around in Sydney living in, you know, public toilets or under bridges or, you know, in garages that were sort of vacant at the time. So that's part of Andrew's story. You'll hear more from him later. But I want to introduce you now to Shanna Wan. So for me, I was basically what you would call a high-functioning alcoholic for many, many years. I had a public profile that was very schmick and um, (laughs) looked and sounded the goods. But behind the scenes, I was anything but high-functioning. I was very rapidly heading towards zero-functioning and... um, Luckily for me, I was able to make a full recovery from alcoholism in 2014, but it nearly claimed my life and it was a 25-year battle. So it's been a pretty full-on journey. Shanna says addiction is a slippery slope and what started as being the actions of that kid from the country living in the city for university turned into a decade-long habit. Along the way, Shanna says people reached out to her, asking her about her wild behaviour, asking her if she had a problem, but she wasn't ready to help herself. And things started spiralling further when she was trying to have a baby. There was a definite change there. I sort of went through these periods of, okay, I've got to detox, I've got to get healthy, we need to start a family. And I was very committed to that and I tried my hardest. But each time we had a failure, I fell further into a really destructive drinking cycle. So, yes, there was a definite turning point. And um, as I explain it to people, when I was at that point, I think all of the unresolved grief and mental health stuff that I'd never, ever had support with when I was a young girl kind of came back with an absolute vengeance to really, really go go for my jugular at that point in my life. And I just didn't cope. And, And it all just steamrolled into one big dramatic cataclysmic bloody disaster, which was me being a suicidal raging alcoholic by the time I was 39. You'll hear more of Shanna and Andrew's stories soon, but let's talk a bit further about substance use and our mental health. Jelaine Allen is a drug, alcohol and mental health researcher with Lives Lived Well and the Queensland University. Right now she's focusing on youth because 12% of young people in Australia will have a drug and alcohol addiction, but only 1% of them will seek help through youth mental health program Headspace. All around the world, you know, the research says it's between 30% of people with a mental health problem to 70% of people with a mental health problem also have a drug and alcohol problem. But, you know, it depends how they measure. It's very variable, but there's a relationship. Is it a little bit hard to measure as well? Because often until you break that substance uh, dependence, you don't quite know what the cause of that is sometimes. Yeah, and I guess that's the difficulty with people getting help for their problems as well. You know, they might, so somebody who's experiencing a lot of anxiety or even um, younger people with ADHD might smoke a lot of cannabis to minimize their symptoms and that works for a while but it's probably not a long-term fix and then they might also then have a dependence on the cannabis they're smoking so Mm. it's not 
it's not an either or. It would be great to just be able to look at the two things together. Jelaine Allen says around regional and rural Australia right now, while there are some services, often people who need help are sent from one place to another, as it's hard to know if addiction or mental health needs to be treated first. Well, I think that the the biggest challenge for people that have both problems is that they can't get both sorted at once. In the health sector, there's a very big separation between mental health services and drug and alcohol services. It's difficult to get support for both problems at once. So you might go to a mental health service and they go, oh, no, your, you know, your substance use is causing your problem. You go to the drug and alcohol service and get that sorted and then come back and see us about your anxiety. In the meantime, the drug and alcohol service says, oh, well, you know, if you stop smoking so much pot, your anxiety is going to get worse. So you better get some help for that before we reduce your cannabis use. You know, so people get shoved from pillar to post about without anybody, you know, really being clear about what it's best to do first. But there are some incredible treatment facilities run in regional New South Wales. One of them is the Involuntary Drug and Alcohol Treatment Program in Orange in the state central west. Lynette Bullen is the senior drug and alcohol clinician at this service. I've worked in drug and alcohol area now for the past 25 years. And since the unit has opened in IDAP, you know, we're getting a very, very different group of people. And most of the people that come through us are physically unwell, whether or not they've got end-stage liver failure, they may have peripheral neuropathy in their feet, so uh, they've got um, limited mobility. It's interesting, we have people that come into our program that may come in on a wheelie walker or a wheelchair and then they actually walk out Mm. of the unit after maybe a month or two or three months. We only can keep people up to three months in our program. The person needs to be um, presented to a magistrate at a tribunal to uphold the dependency certificate because we're taking those persons' rights um, that they once they're in our program, they can't just walk out. Yeah. Mm. How is mental health treated throughout a, a patient's stay with you? We look at the whole person. So we look at their mental health issue. We look at um, their physical issue. So with their mental health issue, you know, if they're drinking large amounts of alcohol, often the alcohol is causing the anxiety and causing the depression mm-hmm. where the patient may think, well, the alcohol is actually helping me to stop being depressed. But sometimes it can be the other way around. So our medical practitioner, our um, addiction specialist, he actually is the one that will take a very thorough history on the patient and will start working with them, um, looking at their physical health and mental health. Uh, We have a psychologist on our unit um, that does all the cognitive assessments and they will also refer back to mental health Um, in the community for when that person leaves, if that's what they would like to do. Because we try to work with the patient on their journey. Uh, And that's the best way to work with someone, is working with them for what they want. And demand for this service is growing because each client is different. They might need to stay longer. The wait time can be long. But Lynette says services are improving in rural and regional Australia. 
There's only 12 beds in New South Wales for the IDAT unit. We have eight beds here in Bloomfield in Orange and there's four beds down in Sydney. It's not crisis. So we actually, there's quite a long planning process of getting someone into our program because we, we try and encourage the workers um, right across New South Wales to support their clients into accessing drug and alcohol services in their own community. Sometimes people struggle to remain substance free. I think out in in rural and remote areas, it's very difficult for people to sometimes get support because there's just not the clinicians out there in those rural areas. In the larger areas, yes, um, there are rehab programs um, scattered through regional New South Wales, but not so much remote areas. Um, so it can be very difficult for people to access services um, in their own community. But there are places where people can get help through their drug and alcohol service at their community health centre, through Aboriginal medical services mm-hmm. in sort of the more rural areas, so they can access that. Um, and there's also a lot online that people can access, um, like Hello Sunday Morning is a great, uh, it's a blog that people can go online. So you can be living anywhere in New South Wales or anywhere in Australia and actually go online and get peer support. So there's lots of support around, but it's sort of knowing where to access that support. So let's get back to Andrew House, Shanawan and their stories. Andrew House went to rehab eight times. He said at first he was going for other people, but it wasn't until he decided to go for himself that he was able to change his relationship with drugs and alcohol. And I actually felt, I felt home for the first time. I felt at home for the first time. Over the course of getting admitted to rehabs, I just kept learning bits and pieces, you know. I just kept learning more about myself, you know. So what do you think was different when you went to rehab on the 19th of August, 1985? I was just done, you know. I'd sort of, I'd used all the drugs. I'd probably been as out of it as I could ever be. I had spent time in prison. I was in and out of lockups all the time. I I was just, you know, there was no chance that I was ever going to be capable of, you know, I was unemployable. It was impossible for me to actually get somewhere to live. I was, I was actually, you know, I just, there was no way in the world that I could get rustle up money to sort of, you know, get money for a bond or stuff. The idea of having any friends was impossible. The idea of actually being employable was impossible. The, the idea of actually owning any possessions was impossible. So it sort of reached that point where I hadn't contacted my family for a while. I hadn't really spent any time with any friends for a while. I was, um, you know, just floating from place to place. Pretty much I was just living from, you know, between drugs really. So I was just, you know, my whole life was revolving around getting the next drug, you know, and then I just realised that the drugs don't even work. When I got released, I went to self-help meetings, which really helped me a lot because um, I needed that identification. I needed a safe sort of peer group to probably a less extent these days. I think it's, it's, I really wanted to live in the world, you know, so I sort of went to support groups so I could live out here and separate my thinking from that addictive thinking. So, well, yeah, the addiction's saying this, but that's just all in my head, you know, what's in my heart and, and how do I actually get to that place, you know, to, to live and, and to be a full person, yeah. you know. So I believe I'm no less alcoholic today than I was than, than the day I stopped drinking because I really went to great lengths to try to, to, to use drugs and alcohol and other drugs. So I, I tried every method there was and I pretty much exhausted all excuses or all reasons I had to drink. So I sort of was pretty convinced that, you know, it was the first one that, that, that does the damage. So 
it's like, well, if I don't have the first one, I can't get drunk. If I don't have the first other drug, I can't get stoned. If, you know, if I don't, have, and, and I change my relationship with the drug as well. So I, people say, oh, don't you ever feel like having a beer? And I say, well, that's like asking me, do I feel like losing my job, my house, my friends, my sanity, you know, my, you know, that's so to me, I don't see a glass of beer. I just see a world of hurt. He then, almost by accident, started working in drug and alcohol treatment, first at a rehab, then in corrective services, now with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Andrew says it was his experience that drove his desire to work helping others because he understands exactly what they're going through. It just feels natural. It just feels like, you know, this is who I am. So it's like having a skill of being a carpenter. Well, it's like, well, why would you be a bricklayer when you've got a carpenter? You know, when you could be a carpenter, it's where your skill is and that's where your passion is. So I guess for me it's it's just sort of who I am and I feel like I've got a good... I can get a good, um, have a good relationship with people that have got similar histories, you know, because one of the biggest things that, that one of the most painful things was for me was feeling misunderstood. And I think to have someone that does understand, I think makes a big difference, you know, and, and it's still important for me to be, to be understood. There's a lot of stigma attached to the drug users or homeless people and stuff that, you know, that they're um, not valued or not valuable as, as, you know, community members. And, you know, the reality is the potential for those people is enormous. Like I've, I guess I've proved that over, you know, 33 and a half years of, of not drinking or taking other drugs and, you know, I've been employed for most of that time. I've been useful in the community for most of that time. You know, I've got good relationships, good friendships, you know, make positive contributions and, and I really want to, you know, help people and, and try and make a difference, you know, not just in, you know, in my work but in like my social life and buying a house and owning a car and being a, a productive member of society. Shanna Wan's turning point was similar. She needed to help herself, but she also, for the first time, met someone who didn't look like the stereotype of an alcoholic. I reached out and I connected with somebody who was a successfully happy, joyful, fully recovered alcoholic, and she looked and sounded and walked and talked like me. So the, so the breaking point and the, the turning point was connecting with, resonating with and identifying with somebody. She was a really smart, savvy, fit, attractive young lady and I went, wow, I didn't know you could be all these things and still be a raging alcoholic. Like no one had ever given me access to information that made sense and honest to God, one conversation with an amazing woman really changed the course of my life forever. That inspired Shannon to start Sober in the Country. You know, once I realised the dramatic impact a relatable conversation had on me, I thought, I'm going to do what this lady did for me, but I'm going to take it to a bigger scale because I know there are so many more people. And, yeah, honestly, what really began as a little kernel and an idea and a blog and a share and a this and a that became a national discussion online through what I labelled sober in the country. Mm. And, holy moly, I can't begin to tell you the impact that it is having because as I knew, I don't, there's nothing extraordinary about me, nothing. Like my story is so ordinary and so common that it's actually terrifying. So as I say to people when they tell me I'm amazing or what I've done is amazing, I go, honestly, I'm not. I am representative of a lot of people. Um, I just talk about it and yeah, sober in the country was really my way of saying, you know what, I don't actually think it's good enough that we treat alcohol abuse and addiction as a dirty little secret because we nourish and engage in and nurture that behaviour. 
you know, from the time we're youngsters in the country. Mm. I, I believe the dirty little secret is the fact that we don't address it when it becomes a deadly disease in the lives of some people like me. I think that's what we should be ashamed of is, is that we, you know, feel this need to isolate people once they've crossed a point and they need help. And we say to them, you, you need to go off now and be anonymous. And I'm like, hang on a minute. That's actually not okay. For Lynette Bullen, who sees people at their very lowest when they first arrive at the IDAS unit in Orange, she says seeing the recovery stories, the successes, is incredibly rewarding. It's wonderful to see. Um, And, you know, sometimes we don't get the successes, but there's a lot of times that we do. And it may mean that the person, and this is from my own observations over the last few decades, sometimes They may not stop completely. They may control their substance or alcohol use, but their quality of life has improved. They've got stable relationships, accommodation. They may have work. Things are going really well for them and they can see the benefits of not um, continuing to consume at a level that's harmful or hazardous. So what else needs to be done when it comes to substance use and mental health? Jelaine Allen says it starts with changing stereotypes. For communities and uh, people out there understanding the problems that people have with with substance use, it's like just, I guess, thinking it's not really a choice and that's not because you're weak or a bad person. It's because of the physical and psychological effects of that drug. So I think it's important the community understands that, you know, rather than maybe hiding away the old uncle who drinks too much or the the person they're concerned about that takes too much prescription medication because they don't want them to be associated with drug addicts. And the most important thing for you to remember is that if you or someone you know and love is struggling with their mental health and substance abuse, there is help. You can contact your local Rural Adversity Mental Health Program coordinator by typing in your postcode at www.ramhp.com.au. They can put you in touch with the best people to find you help because, as Lynette Bullen says, there is always someone there to help. The best thing that someone can do if they're struggling with a substance use, depression, anxiety is just to make that first step to say, I actually need some help. And pop your hand up, ask for help, because there are people out there that will want to help you. Make their their own choices, but they're there to help and guide you and support you while you're doing that. So contacting your mental health hotline, contacting your local drug and alcohol help hotline, or ADIS, which is the Alcohol Drug Information Service. Contact these services and say, where can I get this help? Because there is help out there. You've been listening to Let's Talk, a podcast about mental health in rural and regional Australia. If you or someone you know needs help, there are so many places you can turn. If you need someone to talk to, you can call the New South Wales Mental Health Line on 1800 011 511 for some advice or Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can also access a bunch of really useful information on the Centre for Rural and Remote Mental Health's website www.crrmh.com.au. 
You want to know more about mental health in regional Australia? Click subscribe. Let's Talk is in all the popular podcast places. So find us, share us and help us spread the message of good mental health.